0: Samuel David Luzzatto, known by his Hebrew acronym Shadal, was the leading Italian Jewish scholar of the 19th century. A linguist, educator, and religious thinker, he devoted his talents above all to the interpretation of the Bible. As a master of Hebrew grammar and usage, he focused on the plain meaning of the text. Although he was a devout believer in the divinity, unity, and antiquity of the Torah, Shadal approached the text in a remarkably free spirit of inquiry drawing upon a wide variety of sources, ancient and contemporary, Jewish and non-Jewish. As a result, his interpretations may strike even the modern reader as fresh and novel. Here, for the first time, is an all-English version of both the text translation and the unabridged commentary. Through Kodish Press, Daniel Klein has translated Shadal's commentaries on Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. Join us as we speak with Daniel Klein about Luzzatto's life and commentaries on the Torah. You're listening to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm Michael Morales, your host. Daniel A. Klein is an attorney and legal writer and a graduate of Yeshiva University and New York University School of Law. His study of Italian as a youthful hobby led to a fascination with Italian-Jewish culture, and in particular, the works of Shadal Samuel David Luzzatto and his wife live in Rochester, New York, where he has taught Judaic studies at elementary, high school, and adult levels. Dan, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So, Dan, tell us a little bit about yourself as we begin.
1: Right. Well, um, my name is Daniel Abraham Klein. I'm 67 years old. I have worked most of my professional life as a legal writer and editor. Um, I got my undergraduate degree at Yeshiva University in New York, Then I went to NYU School of Law Um, until really recently. I never actually practiced law. I was in the legal publishing industry, uh, writing articles about topics of law, um, editing other people's work. Um, Now that I'm a little bit retired, I'm working for an actual law firm doing um, actual law work. And so now I can actually say I'm a lawyer. I grew up in Yonkers, New York, just north of New York City. Uh, I now live, well, for about half of my life in Rochester, New York, where I got a job. We like living upstate. I've always been interested in languages, and that's um, something that I can talk about a little bit more about how I got into Chadal.
0: Dan, you've been translating Lusato's works for some decades now. What was it that first drew you to him? Well,
1: it's a long, complicated story, but a kind of acute one. Uh, Let's begin with my father, who was a world traveler in his business. Uh, He spent a lot of time in Europe and felt very strongly that he should try to communicate with people in their own languages. Um, He went to Berlitz and took courses in German and Dutch and French. He was quite good at communicating with people that way. Um, When I was about 12, he got the idea that um, I and my siblings should all learn a new language. Most of us had been already learning Hebrew in school, but he thought something else to broaden our horizons. So the first language he picked was Russian for a brother of mine, and he kind of tossed him a burlitz phrase book and said, Here, go learn Russian. And wouldn't you know he did. He still uses it all these years later in his work as a patent agent. That left the rest of us. He never threw any other books at us, but I was looking at, I figured if my brother could do it, so can I. I looked on the bookshelf and what I found was a little green Burlitz travel book for in it for Italian. And I thought to myself, I don't know if I would have picked this first choice, but that's what there is. Let me open it up and look. And it didn't take me long to figure out that not only is Italian a fairly easy language to learn, but it's also a very beautiful language. And I plunged into it. The next part of the story has to do with my grandmother, my mother's mother, who back in the 1920s had gone to Barnard College and among other things had studied Italian. When she found out what I was doing, first she gave me one of her old textbooks, which was very useful, and then she changed my life entirely. She showed me a book from her father's library. Her father had been a fairly prominent rabbi in New York in the early 20th century. And this book was the first volume of Samuel David Luzzatto's commentary on Pentateuch, it was, uh, the Genesis volume. And she thought at first that I would just sort of be interested in looking at familiar biblical verses and see what they look like in Italian, and that was very entertaining. But then I noticed that not only were there the Italian translation of the text, but on the bottom of the, each page was in Hebrew a commentary. And when I started to look at that commentary, I realized this stuff makes sense. I like it. It's, it's beautifully written, and uh, it's, it's good. Uh, Years passed. Um, I was in law school. I was on a a summer break. An idea popped into my head. I said, I've been looking at this for years. I have an unusual skill set. I know Hebrew. I know Italian. I have a feeling that very few people know about this wonderful material. Maybe what I should do is translate it, translate all of it into English, from the Italian and from the Hebrew. And... I set out to do that, that was in 1976, it's been 40, 40, 45, whatever years, and on and off I've been working on it, not steadily, it's never been my day job, but I published the first volume, Genesis, in 1998. Uh, A second edition came out just a couple of years ago because it needed a little bit of updating. Um, It took another 15 years or so for Exodus to be ready, uh, and then Leviticus just came out earlier this year. Um, I'm hoping now that I'm getting older, I need to work a little faster to uh, finish the, the Pentateuch before it's too long. Um, I'm working on the book of Numbers now. I'm about, about a third of the way through. And that's the story.
0: We are talking today about Shadal's commentary on the Torah, the first three books, Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. Would you give us first a sketch of Samuel David Luzado and why his commentaries are so significant
1: Samuel David Luzzato Samuel Davide Luzzato known as Shadal an acronym of his Hebrew name lived from 1800 to 1865 I always tell people he was almost exactly a contemporary of Abraham Lincoln to give you perspective there he was born in Trieste which is now in Italy but was then part of the Austrian Empire he spent most of his career in Padua or Padova also now in Italy but also then Um, Part of the Austrian Empire so you could say he was as Austrian as he was Italian. He was culturally Italian the Italian language was his native tongue and He spent most of his life teaching at a school in Padua called the Collegio Rabbinico Rabbinical College. It was really the first rabbinical seminary of its type perhaps in the whole world. It was a a professional training school for rabbis of the kind that had not existed before Um, in this role he taught primarily um, Bible, Bible interpretation, uh, also taught elements of the Jewish religion, elements of Jewish history, but his focus was always on um, interpretation, exegesis. Um, Over the years, he was there about 35 years, and he was the mentor to many of the leading Italian rabbis who followed him. Some of them lived well into the 20th century, the longest surviving ones uh, really lived into World War I, carrying on his legacy. wrote many many books uh, he was a poet he was a a thinker he, he didn't like philosophy i wouldn't call him a philosopher I, I call him a thinker um he wrote books about grammar he was very attuned to hebrew grammar or grammar of any language he, he taught himself several ancient and modern he, uh, languages um french german latin he never attended university he actually had very little formal education when he was 13 he became ill, and his doctor decided he shouldn't be in school anymore, and that was the end of his formal education. But he studied with his father, who was also a scholar in his own right. He studied with chief rabbi at his native city. He kept up his studies and was a voracious reader on his own. Um, he taught himself this, the science of grammar, and the, uh, um, read many Western philosophers. Uh, he became quite learned. You would never know that he was not a university product. Um, In his career, he was a friend of many of the um, modern Jewish European scholars who were part of a movement known as Wissenschaft des Judentums, the academic uh, study of Jewish texts and Jewish history. He accused some of them of not going about it for the right motives. He thought, well, they're just in it because they're interested in the ancient. Judaic tradition, just as they would have been the ancient Egypt or ancient Babylonia, not as a living tradition, as he felt was his own interest. Um, So he had a foot in both worlds. He was in the academic world. He was in the traditional Jewish world. And in that way, he was really quite a unique figure. The reason I think he is significant to this day is because of this blend of ancient and modern that he embodies in his work. Um, Those people who are from a more traditional background as far as Bible goes, will appreciate his uh, basic orientation, but people who are slightly more academic or modern bent can also glean from what his uh, approach was. He very much believed in finding the truth where he found it, or where where it could be found, accepting the truth where it could be found. He looked at all the sources he could find, ancient and modern, Jewish, non-Jewish, if there was anything of value, he would incorporate it. If found things in these sources that he disagreed with, he was very frank in his disagreement. But he, he didn't shut anything out of his intellectual universe, and that's, that's what I admire about him, and that's why I think he's relevant.
0: Translators who work so closely with a person's thought often get to know authors better than scholars who merely study their work without translating it. What would you say, after all these years, impresses you the most about Shadal? I think
1: he must have been a very interesting person. Maybe not always easy to get along with. He was very frank and sometimes sarcastic, and it comes through in his commentary. Uh, when he disagreed with somebody, he didn't suffer fools gladly. But um, his, besides his uh, overall approach, his writing style is wonderful. An Italian observer once called it limpidissimo, very clear. And I think the combination of what he was saying and how he said it is very attractive, at least to me, and hopefully to an audience. I want to add something that hardly anybody knows about him. I discovered this only recently reading through some of his letters, which when when you say letters, there are volumes of collections of his letters. There are two volumes of his letters in Hebrew alone. There is another volume of his letters in Italian, French, and Latin. Uh, I don't really read Latin. I haven't gotten into those. Somebody should. But the Italian letters, some of them are quite fascinating, and what comes out from some of these letters is that he had a very unusual friendship and a close friendship with a leading Catholic theologian of his day, um, Monsignor Francesco Nardi, who was a professor of canon law at the University of Padua when Shadal was teaching at the rabbinical seminary in Padua. I'm not sure how they met, but over, the, over a series of many years, they had an exchange of letters. Um, Nardi was writing a book about the history of embroidery. I'm not sure how he got into that, but somehow he asked Shadal for biblical references to embroidery. It comes through in the the building of the tabernacle. He provided those references and Nardi thanked him and in his book referred to Shadal as an ornament of our city, which I think was a little bit unusual for a Catholic clergyman to be referring to a Jewish person at that time. Relations between the church and the Jewish community were not always the best then. They went on to serve, and I would love to know more about this. They served together on a committee that was called upon to investigate an ancient tablet that had been found in Sicily and supposedly uh, contained ancient Hebrew writing. Uh, I would love to know what the result of their research was and how they cooperated. I'm not sure if there's any more to find out about that, but just a tantalizing hint. Nardi wrote a book about the Catholic religion. Shadal felt confident enough in their friendship to express disagreement with some of the points that he made, um, but always referred to him in his letters as uh, my dearest friend. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful little sidelight on it that hardly anybody knows about. Well, now, people, now more people know.
0: Thinking about your translation of Shadal's commentary on Genesis, maybe you can offer us an example passage that exemplifies his style or his insight.
1: Okay, um, looking at Genesis, uh, there is many gems and insights throughout his commentary on Genesis, but I think the very first remark he makes is probably the most significant one. He says, wise people know that the Torah, the Pentateuch, is not a book of science. That's not what it's for. That's not what it's teaching us. We shouldn't expect to find science in the Torah. He goes on to say, because of this, um, scholars of the Torah should not force the text of the Torah to conform with science. And on the other side of the coin, uh, critics of the Bible should not reject the Torah if it does not conform with science. And these, I think, are lessons that still need to be learned today. Uh, There are people who, in this day, are are trying to uh, create a science out of what they find in the Torah. There are people who reject the Torah because it is not modern enough all of these questions, I think, were irrelevant for Shadali. He said, that's not what we're getting out of the Torah. The Torah is telling us how to live our lives. Uh, it's not pitched intellectuals, it's pitched, pitched to the entire people. Uh, it's, it's to better our lives and to uh, teach us how to live with other people. As an example, see, th- this is something that might cause a little concern or shock in some audiences. Um, when he gets to the creation of the sun on the fourth day, he says, "Why was the sun? Why is the sun's creation presented as happening on the fourth day? Um, would wouldn't it have been sensible to have it done on the first day when there was light?" And his answer is, "Many people worshipped the sun. Maybe what the Torah is trying to convey is, no, the, the sun is not the be all and end all. It wasn't what came first. It's a, kind of a Johnny come lately in the course of creation." And it's being put in its place. Now, you can read into that what you want to read, and what, what I think he's saying is that the story of creation as told in Genesis is not necessarily a literal account. Um, it took me a while to realize that that's what I think is what he's saying. Uh, again, some people may find this too modern, some people may find it um, not modern enough. Uh, whatever his approach was, I think it's very interesting, and. This is one of the highlights, I think, of his commentary on Genesis.
0: Did any particular passage in Exodus, should all's commentary on Exodus, stand out to you during your translation work as being especially significant, illuminating, or winsome?
1: Yes, there is what there is that I would call winsome. Um, when he gets down into the interpretation of words and phrases, which is mostly what he does, I mean, his first commentary on Genesis is a little bit unusual for him because he gets into a broader picture and, and a uh, um, how you should think about the book as a whole. But what he mostly does is gets into words and phrases. I always say if you want an inspiring talk about um, the, the weekly reading of the Torah, um, you may not find it there. You may, but you may not. But if you want to know what this word means or what that word means, Shadal is your man. What? I like especially about his commentary on Exodus is the way he treats the Song of the Sea, chapter 15. Um, He talks about parallelism, biblical poetry, uh, how words that seem to be Aramaic get into Hebrew poetry because they were archaic words of the kind that poets like to use. In particular, he zeroes in on one word in chapter 15, verse 5. In English, first part of the verse is the depths cover them. In Hebrew, it's The word yehasyumu, Shadal points out, is a very odd and unusual word uh, grammatically. He says, uh, it should have been something else a little bit. It should have sounded a little bit different. It should have been yechasumo or yechasum or yechasyumu, but why two u sounds? That's very unusual, and he dismisses several other attempts at understanding why this unusual grammatic form occurs. His theory is that it's onomatopoeia, the word yichas you mu, sounds like you're getting into a dark and deep place in the sea. The Egyptians are drowning, they can't get out. Yichas and, and that really appeals to me a lot because he was attuned to the sound of the language and uh, unusual grammatical forms and why, why that was. Um, I dropped a little footnote there. That's one of the things I enjoy about doing my translating work is the ability to drop footnotes and explain things that he left unsaid, or add things that he never would have thought about. And in this case, I said, in the English language, you still have the same phenomenon with the double O sound. You have an expression like doom and gloom, exactly the same thing. And then I remember reading a poem by Edgar Allan Poe called "Ulaloom," and it's the same idea. So I can understand what she's talking about. And uh, that particular gem is what stands out in my mind for the the book of Exodus. Of course, there's much more there.
0: Most recently, you've also translated Shadal's commentary on Leviticus, which of itself is already a difficult book. It has technical, cultic terms. In your preface to that work, though, you mentioned being surprised at how much you enjoy translating Luzato's commentary on Leviticus. How so?
1: Okay, well, the first thing I mentioned in my introduction is I found a really good quote from Mary Douglas who said that Leviticus is usually looked upon as a book that's put away in a glass case. Uh, it can be admired, it can be uh, uh, thought about, but uh, it's a little bit inaccessible. So the fun, if you will, of, of translating Leviticus was making it more accessible. I have certainly made it more accessible to myself. Um, I also mentioned in my introduction that my, my daughter was preparing a series of lectures about the book of Leviticus and in the course of doing that came to the realization that in many years of Jewish education she had never studied it in school. And then I thought I really didn't either. I mean very briefly I we touched upon some of it at Yeshiva University but most people never actually sit down and study it at least as part of a Jewish education. So I became much more familiar with what was going on uh, anytime you translate anything you've become familiar and here's a, a cute little sidelight i have a friend whose cousin once translated the book of jonah into klingon and when i heard about that i thought you know what could be a, a bigger waste of time than that and then i thought about it some more and i said he he knows the book of jonah better than anybody so the enjoyment i had Besides that in translating Leviticus was what we call in the legal publishing industry, adding value. You don't just repeat what a court said, you interpret it, you compare it with other court cases. And so I I feel like I've added value. Um, When we come to the laws of the so-called leprosy disease, it's tzarat in Hebrew, Um, it's quite apparent that this is not the disease called leprosy in modern times or Hansen's disease. And I did a little research about why the, the disease was called leprosy. Shadal himself translates it in his Italian as lebra, which is, means leprosy. Um, that was a conventional way to translate the word in his day. In some translations, it still does appear that way. But I wanted to find out why that misconception came about. Apparently, there were two different diseases. There was one in the ancient times was one that was known to the uh, Greek-speaking scholars later, uh, were familiar with something called leprosy, and figured, well, this is, must be the same thing. This is some overlap of symptoms, but apparently it was a mis- misconception. So I dropped a very long footnote about, you know, why Shadal used the word lebra. In, in my research, I discovered other writings of his uh, in Italian about um, going into more detail and explaining the He didn't really think it was a contagious disease he didn't really think it was um, something that could be treated medically so i found out a little bit more about what he thought besides what he wrote in his actual commentary and i found out a lot about those diseases and and that was enjoyable to me i'd never known these things before and hopefully it will be edifying for readers Um, another instance where he doesn't say a lot in his actual commentary but i dug up a little more information was his discussion of what we now call Rosh Hashanah, the, the, the New Year. In Hebrew, in the text, it's called Yom Azikaron, the day of proclamation. And the proclamation is made with, by sounding the shofar. He doesn't say much about the significance of the shofar, but I found in his letters a much more extensive discussion. He, one of his uh, pen pals, as you may call it was a rabbi named Elia Ben Amozeg, a, a rab, an Italian rabbi of Moroccan origin, who was very much into mysticism and Kabbalah. And he said in one of his letters to Shatal, obviously written right before Rosh Hashanah, he said, tomorrow you will hear the shofar and I will hear it. I know what, what it will say to me. It will have all sorts of mystic reasons to be listening to it, but what will it say to you? And Shadal replied, it will say to me, first of all, you should know that I think the reason that we blow the shofar is simply because in ancient times, there were no printed calendars, and this was a way to let everybody know that the new year was coming. Um, Now that that purpose is no longer around, we still sound the shofar to remind us of our, us being the Jewish people, of our national past, our political past, and the, the pride we should be taking in those uh, remembrances. Then he goes on to say, actually, bottom line, the real reason we blow the shofar is because God told us to. We don't need any more reason than that. And uh, Benamose was really not satisfied with that. He said uh, the shofar could be looked upon as a uh, an ancient irrelevant relic if, if all it is is was, it was for calendar purposes or to remind us of the past. That's not going to grab people today. It's not going to get them interested in hearing the shofar being blown. Interesting Luffy. he sort of anticipated something that happened in part of the Reform Jewish movement. They, they found the shofar embarrassingly archaic and substituted a trumpet or a, a trumpet sound of an organ. This is an attitude that did exist. And Mosaic's answer to all of that was, well, you have to really attune yourself to what is happening in the supernal world when you blow the shofar never exactly explained to Chevelle what he thought that meant, but uh, I, I find this very interesting sideline, which is not found in the commentary itself. I had to dig, and I added a footnote, and that's one of part of the enjoyment I found in translating Leviticus.
0: And you mentioned earlier that you're about a third of the way through in your translation work on numbers? Yes.
1: I've had to put it on a little bit of hold because of um, things like this that came up. I had to prepare for that. But once I get back to it, I will be uh, trying to put on a head of steam. And again, it's the same kind of thing. His commentary on Genesis was probably about twice as long as any of the other books. He, in certainly in Leviticus and I think in the rest of the books, um, will leave several verses at a time uncommented. But just translating his translation is a way of um, finding out what he thought about the meaning of certain words, especially because in his translation, which was originally published separately, I should should point out how this happened. He published this Italian translation of the text separately and before he died, 1858 or so, 1858 to 1860, his Hebrew language commentary was never really meant for a large audience. He, He published short excerpts from it in the 1840s probably wanted to publish more of it, but died before he could do that. So what happened was he never actually prepared an entire manuscript himself that we know about. He left probably manuscripts of his in his own writing. I'm not sure, I've seen these manuscripts, no one's quite sure who wrote them, whether he or some of his students. But what we do know is that some of his students did take very careful notes in class or even perhaps were given uh, material to see before class, wrote them down, and these students compiled what they had and prepared for publication a combined edition of Shadal's Italian translation and his Hebrew commentary. So they were never actually meant to be together, but they were, in the end, uh, starting in the 1870s. There sometimes actually are contradictions between the text translation and the commentary because he never really was there to um, put a final editing job on the whole thing. Also, during the course of his career, we know that he fairly frequently changed his opinions. So he didn't always have time to uh, catch his translation up or catch his commentary up to make it conform with each other. Um, That's again, part of the fun. When When I find a contradiction, first thing I have to do is ask myself, am I translating this correctly? Is this right? Uh, And then when I'm sure about that, I'll try to account for the difference. I actually wrote a whole article once, uh, going back to Genesis, where Abraham, Abraham, still known as Abram at the time, is promised by God that he will have many descendants. And the verse, I don't have it in front of me right now, it's, uh, he had faith in the Lord and he counted it as righteousness. Who's the he? Who's counting righteousness to whom? And this, I was quite surprised to see that the translation by Shadal went one way, that God was um, according righteousness to Abram. In his translation, he said, absolutely not. as if he had, hadn't had even ever seen his own translation. He said, it's the other way. Uh, Abram is attributing uh, righteousness to God. And here's why. He goes on and on. Um, this really bothered me for a while because, you know, am I seeing things, what's going on? Um, then I discovered a letter that he had written to a uh, Hebrew periodical explaining his change of thought. And it's too long to get into here, but he did change his thought, and he had several reasons for doing that, and this is one of the fascinations about translating Shaddai. One more thing. Uh, In the Book of Numbers, uh, it begins kind of prosaically. There are a lot of census figures and names and numbers, hence the Book of Numbers. But um, what I haven't gotten to yet and what I can't wait to is the story of, um, in Hebrew, Bilam, and I guess in English would be Balaam. Um, he has a series of questions. What what made him tick? What was he up to? Uh, was he a real prophet? Was he a false prophet? Did he worship God? Did he, worship God? Did he not worship God? Um, just very briefly, his idea was that he worshiped God because that was his assignment for that day. Um He was a a prophet for hire. He would look into whatever any cult uh, demanded or or was asked of to uh, worship their God and get into that. And his thought was, by so doing, he would be able to manipulate God into doing what he was asked to do, bless or curse accordingly. What it reminds me of, and I'll probably drop a footnote to this, is that um, when you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, Uh, the same thing happens toward the end. You have the evil French archaeologist who's been asked to open up the ark, and he first gets himself up to look like a high priest, and uh, his Nazi handlers are asking him, why all this Jewish stuff is, oh, we have to do it this way. Um, This is exactly what Balaam, I think, was trying to do. He uh, brought sacrifices, he built altars, thinking that he could, in that way, accomplish uh, you know, winding God around his finger. Of course, it didn't work for him. It didn't work for the French archaeologist. Um, but they tried. And I, I think that's what was going on at that time.
0: Hopefully we can have you back on the NBN to talk more about numbers when you're done. I would like nothing more. So what does life look like after translating Shadal on the Torah?
1: Um, the next thing I want to do, I, I could easily spend decades more translating his works he he unfortunately died at the age of 65 I'm older than that now and to catch up with all of his work take many many more years Um, the next project I would like to try to tackle is his commentary on Isaiah which is considered by many his masterwork it's it's very voluminous um, wonderful piece of work and it would take years and years to to work on but I'd like to at least get my teeth into it at at some point that's my vision for the future
0: Dan, it's been a tremendous delight speaking with you about your translation work on Shadal's commentaries. Thank you so much for being generous with your time.
1: It was entirely my pleasure.
0: All right, friends, you've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.